Hello everybody, this is Dr. Fred. I am responsible, I am accountable, I am capable of assisting people to find their true voice and then deliver it effectively into the world around us. With 40 years in mental health, 32 of them as a psychiatrist, and then a massive amount of conversations, including podcasting and expert speaking, keynote speaking, I have the opportunity to really see the magic that it takes to find one's authentic self and then deliver it effectively into the world. And if you're like me, you can see that now more than ever, that's what's called for. So today is that day. Now is that time. Come forth. Join me in the broadcast. You'll see on the other side of this at True Voice with Dr. Fred. Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of True Voice Podcast or True Voice with Dr. Fred. And I'm here with my often often present and really amazing co-host today, uh, Sam Morris. Uh, we're about to hit the hit the ground running. I can promise that. I don't think there's ever been a conversation I've had with Sam that hasn't at least in some level be qualified as hitting the ground running. Yeah, uh, we, I don't know where exactly we run to, but uh, we definitely hit the ground running. Yeah, we're either running to or from. I would say in most situations we're running to, but straight into a wall or maybe down a rabbit hole or something. Yeah, ex- exactly. And so this is what uh, today has to bring. I have some ideas of things to talk about, Sam. That, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. And really, welcome to the True Boy Show. It is just always an honor and a privilege. I look so much forward to uh, co-hosting with you. Can we get the phone number? Um, can I get that phone number uh, in the chat one more time so I can announce it early? Because we sure would like to have a victim. I'm sorry, a listener come on and join us uh, if they have any questions. That number, folks, if you're listening and you've ever heard me and Sam speak before or you're just eager to talk on the phone, maybe you haven't been talking to anybody for a few days or maybe the people you're talking to are really boring or maybe you just have a question that you want to ask or you have a statement you want to make, I would love for you to call us at 1-888-627-6008. That's 1-888-627-6008. And uh, I'd love to entertain what it is you have to say about anything we're saying or really, frankly, anything you have to say. Now, I'm going to ask that you keep it at least modestly kosher when you're online or we'd have to send you on your way. But if you're ready to have a great discussion, we're ready to have one with you. So, Sam... I was listening to the intro here and, you know, the intro says that the intro says I've been in mental health for over 40 years. I've been in mental health for 42 and a half years. I was figuring this out. Actually, do you do you account for the number of years that you've been crazy in that when you say I've been in mental health or are you talking about professionally? No, the craziness uh, precedes that some. But I want to tell you that, you know, on January 5th, 1980, when I took that job. Uh, you know, my intention, I'm sure you remember, my intention is that I would stay with that job for three weeks. I was um, I was on my way. You know, I had uh, quit school and I wanted to figure out what my life was about. And I came home and told my parents that I want to figure out what my life is about. And my mom's like, oh, that's a really good idea. You don't have to go to school, but you have to get a job then. And then she got me this application for working in a state mental health facility for adolescent boys. And um, I was scared. But Jesus, I was so scared, man. I was just like, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll keep that job for orientation, 
We have 40 hours of orientation for three solid weeks, 40 hours times $13, like 500 bucks a week times three, like 1500 bucks. That should be enough to get me a vehicle, get in my vehicle, and then just drive around the country and figure out what my life is about. And somehow on that Monday, that fourth week, my friend Paul, uh, he convinced me that it was that it was time to go to the floors. And I had told him I was quitting my job after three weeks. I just wanted the money from orientation. But then he kind of blackmailed me. He said something like, uh, well, if you leave, then I'm going to have to leave. And that ain't cool because I got a family I got to yeah, you know, support. And I was like, Paul, man, that's weak. Anyways, I'll go on. And I figured, all right, if I can make 1500 in three weeks in orientation, I can make 1500 for the next three weeks just by holding on, you know, just by white knuckling it through the through the unit. And here I am, you know, 42 and a half years later, still planning on quitting in about three weeks. <laughs> and what keeps you holding on? Well, you know, I, I don't do this shit anymore. That's really what's fun. I really sort of have quit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't do the conventional psychiatry anymore. And you're no small part of that. You know, we've really talked about what works and what doesn't. And as our as a society, our backs are against the wall. Maybe our backs are against the wall more than ever. And I know I'm making decisions that seem to me to be uh, like, you know what? I better do this now because if I don't do it now, I might never get a chance to do it. Like there's a more extreme urgent nature to walking through this world and actually doing what matters to you right now. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about that. Yeah. What do well, you there's something I really admire about you, uh, you know, just so that we can start off by blowing smoke up your ass. Uh, there's really something that I really admire about you, uh, which is your dedication to follow through with, uh, because by all standards of measurement, someone would look at a job like a job in psychiatry and say, well, you can't get much better than that. That is, you know, you have the respect of being a doctor. You have the respect of being a psychiatrist. You can write scripts for medications. You can analyze people's mental states and, and uh, come up with diagnoses, et cetera. It's, it's, a, it's a, a career path which most hold in very high esteem. Sure. And, uh, and rightly so. Rightly so. It takes a very intelligent person to have that level of follow through and dedication to the to the craft and the and the career. And uh, where I really hold you in high regard, though, is the fact that you have looked at your life and you've looked at that career path and you've said, you know what? And that's not enough. And there is something that is limiting about even one of the greatest careers in terms of public perception. And there's still something beyond that, that I'm capable of doing. And there's something beyond that that I'm called to do. And that's not an easy endeavor, especially for a guy who's like, you're 64 years old. And let's, you know, let's be honest, you're not a spring chicken. And oh, Things just moved around there a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, you're not a spring chicken. You're 64 years old. And uh, the the logical thing to do would just be stay the course, keep writing the scripts, keep doing the diagnoses, and go through the pain of not being fully aligned with your career, but, you know, making a respectable income and a stable income. And what I really admire is that you have stuck to your guns with moving beyond that because it's, it is not 
a career path where you are able to explore your full authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more than that, Sam. It's not just, I'm not just pursuing a path that uh, to fulfill my authenticity. There's something about that field, which I also dearly respect. And much of the things that you said, you know, I don't know about having to be intelligent to be a psychiatrist. I'm not sure about that, but most of what you said, I, I agree, which is, you know, it's, it's held in high esteem. There's a lot of power. There's enough money. There's, you know, some degree of freedom and people listen to me and I get to make diagnosis and pretend I know what I'm talking about. Um, there is something very toxic to my soul. I mean, that's where the undoctor comes from. It's, 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 it, when we talk about, are we running, are we hitting the ground running away or are we hitting the ground running to um, there's both in this one. I'm running away. I'm running away. That's enough of that. I've had mm-hmm. enough. I can't lie that much. I can't lie. They, you know, what's on the lines are people's hearts and soul. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, again, I like to always give the disclaimer that if anyone's listening here and has a psychiatric diagnosis that they're happy with and is getting some form of treatment or some form of medication that they think is saving their lives or bringing them their highest, you know, uh, their highest capacity, their optimized capacity to be a human being in this crazy world, then by all means, please stick to that. And I really mean that you have found something. That's what we're all searching for. And if you have found a place where you're happy with your treatment, happy with your diagnosis, happy with your medications, uh, happy with the clinical, you know, your interface with the clinical psychiatric world, then you have found something precious. And I'm really telling you, please don't leave because of anything I said. And don't argue, you know, there's not an argument either. This isn't for you. This is for the hundreds of millions of people who aren't like you. And there are hundreds of millions of people who aren't certain that their psychiatric diagnosis fits them or are a little more certain that their diagnosis and their treatment is actually making them worse or are really not sure at all that their medicines have done So I'm saying that, um, you know, psychiatry, what psychiatry, modern day psychiatry does is kind of blame uh, the person, you know, blame the person for feeling uncomfortable. Even if the setting is very uncomfortable, when someone's uncomfortable in an uncomfortable situation, they blame the person like there's something wrong with you for being depressed or anxious or afraid or nervous or upset or regretting or, you know, having trouble sleeping or uh, uh, ruining relationships or making impulsive decisions that they blame you for that and not, and, and kind of like disregard the circumstances as being a contributor to how you feel. Um, that's really insane. I mean, that's insane to begin with. And I, once I kind of figured that out, I could no longer be an agent for that way of thinking, uh, such that my soul would sacrifice every day. I, you know, my heart would really bleed every day. And, uh, that's the part of this that I'm running away from. And then now I'm running to something, which is that healing comes from the human connection. And I've always known that and even knew that before 1980, the idea that when I connect with another person, there's a tremendous harmonic resonance that, take pl- resonance that takes place that is actually healing in nature, far more profound than anything I've ever seen in conventional psychiatry. So you know, for me, it's a no brainer in some ways. I appreciate your respect, uh, you know, your respect for me getting out of the field. But in some ways, it just feels like uh, I saved myself, you know, mm-hmm. like I took the life, maybe I took the life preserver or something. 
Well, you know, what I'm hearing you say is very reflective of uh, what the Indian philosopher and spiritual teacher Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti, said, which is, it is no measure of good health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And so what I'm hearing you say uh, is that the profession of psychiatry can sometimes blame the individual for dysfunctions that are actually based in cultural dysfunctions, that, that the individual is not able to fit in with the context and the circumstances of life. But a lot of that context, a lot of those circumstances are completely dysfunctional to begin with. So to feel dysfunctional within a dysfunctional society is actually quite a normal response on some level. Exactly, exactly. And as a psychiatrist, you see, even anywhere in mental health, you you can scratch your head and go, there's something wrong with this, but I can hang in there, right? I can hang in there because everybody hates their job or something. You know, I mean, if you work at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you hate your job. I, I get it. You get, you know, people hate their job, but that's why you get paid. You get paid enough so you can come home and feed your family and go on vacation a couple of times a year. Here, there was something different because I was saddled with the responsibility for my signature actually confirming those type of illusional uh, conclusions. Like when I signed something, I was saying that that's what I agreed to. I agreed that this person who's acting dysfunctional in a dysfunctional society is the problem. And whatever we do with him now, it's on me. And that's where it really became like, you know, just like so completely unacceptable to continue at that level. And you're right. You know, I've lived long enough to to go through, you know, when I was working in the factory, they said that if you work 30 years, you could you could retire. So uh, I work 30 years in psychiatry and I earned my retirement. Um, and now it's a matter of taking that experience out and making a difference in the world through helping people get in touch with their real selves. You know, that's that's what I do now. I mean, that's that's what we do. That's that's all that there is to do. And that's no small uh, that's no small potato anyways, by the way. Finding your true self is not an easy not an easy trek. No, it definitely isn't. I mean, it's uh, talk to me about that and elaborate finding your true self. What does that mean to you? Right. So, you know, over time, we have learned how to um, how to obscure our very real self. Like at some point, maybe we had our heart broken when we were children or we had a girlfriend break up with us or we got laughed at or we got dismissed or thrown off the, you know, playground. And, um, you know, we decided that we weren't going to be ourselves anymore because it hurt too much. So then we started acting like we thought we should. And that level of pretension really sat with us and we never went back to repair. The crack in the cement got larger and larger over time. And we never took the time to go back and repair and find ourselves again. Now, we know what that true self is. We know when we're being inauthentic with other people. You, it, you can feel it. When you're saying something just because you're in the right crowd or, you know, you're saying something in this crew or with that person because you know that's what they want to hear, it feels kind of yucky. And what I'm saying is that that true self of yours that's been there from the time that you were born, frankly, but, you know, two, three, four, five years old, is still here and still itching to come out. So 
when we move out these obscure um, these obscure features, these obscuring features, uh, sometimes what happens by listening to someone, you can you can find their authentic self. You can find something that's closer to being what they came on the planet to do, the things that they value, you know, the the things that are important to them, uh, the things that uh, they wish they could say that they've never said, and it's a in some ways it's an experiential. Um, it's an, an, exper- an experiential experience, meaning that you don't, it isn't like you point it out, but when someone actually speaks their truth, the other person can feel the authenticity. And so can you, like when you feel, when you finally speak your truth and say what really matters to you, to me, there's a, there's a relief, there's an exhale, there's a discovery, there's a resonating harmony uh, between you and what is important. And you know, finding that true self is a. Is, sometimes I think it's just a, a silly thing that I represent. Um, you know, like how. Um, you know, how do I know when I'm my true self? And I just when I finally do it in a conversation, when I'm finally smooth and clean and running with what's important to me in the here and now, uh, there is just such a deep value that I then am. Uh, it gets reinforced that there is a thing called true self that one can pursue. What's your thinking on it? Is there such thing as a true self? Well, there's, it opens up a lot of questions for me here. Uh, you know, maybe more questions than answers. And I, the first thing that comes to mind is how uh, I think the vast majority of people have no idea that they might be deceiving themselves in terms of their honest truth. I think the vast majority of people believe that they are being their true selves and they believe that they are their behaviors and their thinking are reflective of their authentic truth. Uh, so much so that they probably never even questioned that, except perhaps in certain social situations where they feel particularly awkward, perhaps. And I think there's a, a degrees to which uh, one can be sort of off of their authentic self, playing a part, playing a role, playing a game, but frequently not even realizing it. In fact, I think there's people who are even, some of the most savvy people uh, are politicians who uh, I believe most of them think that they are being honest. Mm-hmm. And yet I know very few politicians that I can point to who I would look at and say, yeah, you're being honest. They are really playing a role to be convincing to their their uh, followers yeah. that they are uh, that they are their true self, that they are that their behaviors and their thoughts, et cetera, are truly representative of who they are and of the populace that they uh, portend to serve. But I think frequently politicians, you know, to outsiders objectively looking from the outside in, they clearly seem to be completely inauthentic. And, and so that's, that's one, that's the first place that my mind goes is how does one know when they are being inauthentic, and um, especially 
if they are so convinced with their story of who they think that they are, that they have no idea that that is actually the case, that there could be something more authentic. Yeah, it's. A, I think it is a great question. You know, one, there's two places that maybe three places that I want to point to in response to that. Number one, I think that the. It seems that you're going that they or all of us would have to have an experience of profound authenticity sort of thrust upon them to go, oh, wow, this is more me than what I've been acting and then have the humility to act. All right, you're breaking up again, Fred. Wow. There you're back. You're back. All right. Have the authenticity. Go ahead. Let's keep that flow going. So the two places where you might find where people might find authenticity that I can think of are in the performing arts, like art, music, dancing, singing, drama, those kinds of things that the Creative Eight talks about. When a level of authenticity is sort of thrust upon you, where, oh, yeah, you start jamming and you realize, wow, that was more me than what I'm used to being. There must be a more me here. Like you didn't almost inadvertently tripping over yourself and you get an access to a contrast to who you are day after day. And in that contrast, you learn, oh, wow, that that's the me I know and love. That's more me than what I've been kind of thing. So that maybe starts the question or the inquiry as to how can I regain that authenticity? Because it feels a lot better to be consistent with yourself than, than to pretend to be whoever you're pretending to be. The other place yeah. that, you know, the other place where that can happen is inside plant medicines or inside the mm. medicine world, the psychedelics, where if you do, if you do partake in a psychedelic, you're going to be given a new level of truth or a new level of perception of truth that will really knock your socks around if, uh, if in fact, you've been living a false life. And uh, most of us have been, in fact, living a false life. And that's one of the, I think, one of the um, deep values of the psychedelic world is that you get access to being someone that you forgot you were. Your thoughts on either of those things? Okay, so I'm glad that you brought this in, because this is another thing that I was thinking about. I agree. Uh, psychedelics can certainly help to catalyze a, uh, a dive into the unconscious, uh, an exploration of one's motives that they are unaware that they may possess, um, that type of thing. Examinations of, of behaviors that have been patterns from childhood that may not be authentic or may not be relevant anymore. Um, all those things can present themselves through psychedelics. That said, something that I'm keenly aware of, if you sort of look at the Burning Man culture, and you were just out at Arcadia in Las Vegas, the uh, event thrown by Aubrey Marcus and his crew, uh, there is a psychedelic, a psychedelic subculture that is very strong. And one of the things that I have noticed is that there's almost, there's a degree to which that subculture can adopt the same type of language and communication and almost, and, and create this sort of homogenous homogenization of culture. It's sort of like the, the cool kids 
have turned on to the cool drugs and now they have the answers and the regular square people don't have the answers and look at how interesting and cool and creative we are but in a certain way uh, they are just adopting something that to, to me from the outside in and i've played in that culture a bit you know back in the day you know if we were if this was 30 years ago uh, or or so, I would have been fully immersed in that. And I would have been one of those guys 30 years ago, even 25 years ago, perhaps. But now I, uh, with a little distance from it, and I use psychedelics on a you know, somewhat frequent basis, but I, I have this real aversion to psychedelic culture because it feels like a homogenization of a new type of culture. And it seems uh, almost as dysfunctional as the culture that it tries to be reactive to. So that's that's my thought that I'll start with there. I'd love to hear your response, especially since you were just at this big uh, event where I'm sure you saw plenty of psychedelics. Oh, no, nah, not, not a good time for you to be frozen. Come on. All right. All right. Well, you're back. You're back. <laughs> I heard everything you said. All right, cool. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think that's a good place to take a break. You know, this. I think what we're looking at here, and I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna boot down and come back up. So you give me an extra minute. Um, I think what you're looking at here is something about disregarding the sacred nature of the reality that's presented to you through psychedelics, if you manage it with uh, humility and, you know, and, and sacrament. um, Really leads to more of the same, like a psychedelic subculture that's just as pretentious as the subculture that doesn't use psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah. If not more so, if not more so, more dangerous. Yep. Yeah, it's almost like uh, this this sort of notion that we've got God on our side. It, it sort of turns into almost a religious type of uh, orientation. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's go to commercial. I am. I'm going to bow out. I'm going to actually. Uh, I might be an extra minute coming back. I'll see you on the other side. Go ahead to commercial. And uh, what a great discussion! I look forward to the second half of the show. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Fred again. I wanted to explain to you a little bit about one of the names I have called the Undoctor. What is the Undoctor? Well, after about 15 years in the field of me being misaligned with what I was doing, because I was medicating people even knowing that medications were not the right answer, and I was diagnosing people even though I didn't always believe that they had the diagnosis that I said that they had, even though they did meet the criteria, etc. I like seeing humans for exactly who they are and who they're not, and not as a diagnosis. So in 2006, I began the process of becoming the undoctor. I unmedicated, undiagnosed, and then undoctrinated a bunch of people. Like people no longer had to come to a psychiatrist because their conditions cleared. This isn't true for everyone. It may not be true for you, but for some folks who know that their diagnosis doesn't fit and who know that they don't want to keep going through with medications and don't want to be 
seen as someone who's defective or afflicted, this turned out to be a great intervention. Over time, I stopped doing that, and I no longer do a whole lot of conventional psychiatry. Now I just help people walk through their life and find their true voice. I connect with people straight up, not as if there's a power gradient between a doctor and a patient, but it's two humans connecting and resonating with each other. As it turns out, that's where all healing emanates from. So today, I've developed the Welcome to Humanity brand over the last six or seven years, and that really takes into consideration all of this. It is self-explanatory. Basically, each and every experience that we have with humanity is just as exquisite as another, even if it's deeply uncomfortable. From there, we get to actually share these human experiences. From there, we get to resonate and connect, and from there, healing takes place. I also have been helping people with their true voice, and that's why you're here today at True Voice with Dr. Fred. I help people find that true voice, really their authentic self, their core value system, and then deliver it effectively into a world that is eagerly awaiting to hear you. Without your voice, no one will ever hear you. And without your true voice, no one will ever know you. But with your true voice, you can find healing, peace, and love. True voice is what it takes to end all wars. So welcome to True Voice with Dr. Fred. All right, Fred will be back here in just a moment. We are just hanging and waiting for him here. So uh, here he is. He has popped back on. Hopefully his internet connection is better this time. What's up, fam? That's how I'm supposed to talk to you if I'm part of psychedelic culture, right? I'm supposed to call you fam? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. What's up, fam? How you doing, brother? Yeah, how you doing, brother? Exactly. What's going on, fam? Long time, bro. Yeah. What's yeah, there's, all, there's a whole new language, isn't there? I, I did spend the weekend in uh, in Las Vegas, and there's about a thousand people there um, for this Arcadia, which was really that had uh, had the makings of an, a truly beautiful, a truly beautiful experience, um, like a Burning Man uh, variant. And there were parts of it that were set, simply actually a little bit grotesque from my standpoint. Um, Please uh, tell me about the grotesque parts. Yeah, you know, it, the same thing. It's like, you know, uh, uh, Charles Eisenstein was there and uh, and Marcus, and uh, Aubrey Marcus was there and a few different, you know, uh, uh, Jamie Wheel was there. There's a lot of cool people there. And there was a the, the electronic music was blaring, pounding, pounding, pounding till three in the morning. And, um, you know, some of the music is very is very good. And some of it I didn't really understand. And the dancing and the glitter and the, you know, sort of the um, I don't know, it's like a self-absorption that takes place and over intoxication um, it really, these aren't the people I want running my world, not as they were there, not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like fun when you're 19 years old and you are just sort of exploring a sense of freedom and you're breaking out from the status quo and you recognize that there is a, 
a subculture, that there's uh, other idealists out there that share a lot of the same ideals that you possess, et cetera. But like you said, uh, these are not people who I would feel, or I mean, I'm being, I'm generalizing a lot here, obviously. I mean, Jamie Wheel and and, uh, Charles Eisenstein, I respect them and admire them uh, a lot. But not everyone there is a Jamie Wheel or a Charles Eisenstein. Uh, The vast majority are followers, not leaders. And they are following along with a culture that basically emphasizes freedom at the expense of responsibility in many respects and uh, that life is just a big party, which, Hey, it'd be great if we could uh, maybe find a little bit more middle ground. So I I agree that life, we are here on an adventure and that there's plenty of possibilities to enjoy this process more than most people do. And yet I feel like, yeah, you use the word self-absorbed. I think that's very accurate for a lot of this culture. Yeah. There's a, a narcissism and ego that comes along that it that just replaces a different form of ego. Yeah, it's uh, it, in some ways it's really tragic. And I felt a sense of grief over the weekend. Like, wow, this is like the power of psychedelics is one where if you use it effectively or guide it appropriately or you know, uh, go in with an intention to find a greater sense of truth. And uh, even if it it can be totally fun, there's nothing wrong with having absolute, you know, ecstatic sure. fun. Sure. But there was, gosh, there was something that seemed so pretentious at times. And, um, and in some ways, I, I, I didn't trust the people. I didn't trust, like trust and authenticity was not, what I often saw coming from the people. There was like, uh, you know, when you look at like some of the people I'm pretty certain were, were, um, were on MDMA and, you know, so there's a real pleasure, you know, there's a real, it's kind of fun and interesting to be with that level of smile and heartfelt love for another human. I, 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 I could actually live with that. And that was kind of contagious and I enjoyed it. Sure. Um, and it felt real. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, it was like with LSD or whatever else they were taking sometimes when they were just flat out uh, on a different, different astral plane. Um, and then, you know, the ecstatic level dancing, there was something like, wow, I cannot relate. And I admit, I wish I could. I feel more desperate to want to relate. And yet I feel left out just as much as. I feel left out of someone who's, you know, stiff shirting it as a accountant or something. Mm-hmm. Just, just as weird, just as strange, just as unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, I get it. It's a tricky, tricky problem, really. Um, because I think that there's such a, some of these psychedelics create not only such a, a dramatic dimensional shift, they also create a total dissociation with mm, normal standards and codes of, of, of uh, being where there is such a focus on simply 
enjoying the present moment. Nothing wrong with enjoying the present moment. I'm a huge fan of enjoying the present moment. That is what I'm advocating for all the time. However, it is sort of in an end unto itself that seems to lack direction completely. It's, it, it is a directionless type of orientation, I, I, I guess is how I would put it. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, okay, well, that's fine for a period of time. But if that's something that becomes a lifestyle where the directionless orientation becomes all-consuming, then it's highly dysfunctional. Um, I mean, I'm all for being directionless periodically, but if that replaces, if there's a sort of a culture or a mentality that comes along with a certain type of adoption of certain behaviors and ways of thinking and philosophical constructs that are related to this sort of complete self-absorption in the present moment, then it loses connection where it previously sought to seek greater connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and does it, 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 it was very hard for me to integrate this at times. It was very hard. I was there all night, um, you know, working the shift until the graveyard shift until three, three thirty, And, uh, you know, we, our job, my job was peer support and, uh, uh, you know, psychedelic peer support. So people who took too many psychedelics would show up in our midst and we'd have to care for them and either walk them off the ledge or provide some degree of comfort or orientation. <clears throat> and I really do honor that role. And I uh, believe that I did good, good work on the uh, high side on, you know, on the high side of being a human. It was good to take that stand in that setting. No, if I was losing my shit, I think you'd be the first guy I want to come to. So well, I think you're, you're well suited for that role. I really appreciate that. And we had, you know, we had some challenges uh, that were hard to, negotiate and i and i don't think i'm going to go maybe offline i'll tell you about one of them because it was so interesting because there was a degree of massive pretension that that culture just allows for like you just like you can be totally full of shit and have taken too much acid like that's so interesting because i have it that if you take acid you're done being full of shit. Oh, no, not at all. I know. Not at all. No. I think there's actually a very small subset of the population that is actually less full of shit as a result of taking psychedelics. I think the vast majority of people become more full of shit. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is so sad. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, you just hang out till it's over until you realize that it's never over. Then you got new problems. It's never over. And, and, you know, don't really get access. I was glad to hightail out of Las Vegas. I was glad when I crossed the California state line coming back, I was really glad to be back at my home here in Northern California. And, uh, and, you know, we talked about like, like Eisenstein, have you ever seen Eisenstein talk? Yeah, I have. Not so, in person, but on many YouTube videos. Okay, so you know about? Do you know that about his uh, ultra, like his uh, uh, his uh, alter ego character, uh, um, Sir Dudley? 
You know about Dudley? I'm not familiar with Sir Dudley, no. Okay. All right. Uh, Sir Dudley's kind of a twisted character, and uh, he's uh, he's a member. He's a he's uh, had access to the Intergalactic Federation, and uh, Eisenstein represents this Sir Dudley, who lets us know that we're all um, intergalactic beings rather than the humans that are limited, like we think we are. And he okay. walked us through that, and it was pretty profound and slightly controversial, to say the least. And in the meantime. Like the music and the presentations from the stage were meant to create like massive entertainment illusions, not not closer to the truth. You know, fire fire um, breathing, and you know the the light show was meant to twist your head up in all sorts of knots, and the sounds were so strange that there you know that you could go down these adventurous rabbit holes. Like it was just for just like locked into your chair and being entertained by the world around you. And I suppose, like you said, there's some value to that. I, too, have partaken in that culture and really have been seduced. I enjoy it immensely to be able to sit in my chair and go, whoa, that's so cool. Wow, wow, wow. But it seems like if we're out to make a world that works, then we got to set that aside a little bit and move into what are the discoveries that. Aldous Huxley came up with? What are the discoveries that, you know, that uh, Stanislav Graf came up with? What, what really happens when you take these medicines and go digging deeper into a greater truth, uh, rather than just being entertained by the light show? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and something that uh, I'm always considering is psychedelics can open one up to obviously extraordinary dimensions of consciousness, many of which I feel uh, can play a part in evolving as humans together. I think psychedelics have played a part in the past in our prehistory. And I think that they can and will play a part in our future as well. And yet that self-absorption in the, and the spectacle of it, it serves as at cross purposes to the integration of psychedelics into a greater mainstream uh, uh, culture. Is that's kind of what I see. Like the more it goes into the spectacle, the less appealing it is, and the more polarizing psychedelics are to the people who could actually benefit from them. Exactly. You know, so it's, it creates a culture that people can look at and for with very good reason, they can, they can, it is completely valid to judge the shit out of that culture and say, this is ridiculous. Yeah, disregard. It's completely self-absorbed. This is completely naive. This is completely idealistic. Why would we bother to follow these idiots who are walking around, you know, covered in mud with eyeballs, pupils the size of silver dollars, who are, you know, just like, why would we want to follow that? That's so I think it, it, yeah, so it serves at cross purposes to what could be a really, uh, you know, potentially integrative approach. Yeah. And that uh, that saddens me. 
Yeah, it's it is. It's deeply saddening. Is it? Let's talk. Let's see if we can go to some solutions. You know, the, to me, it's like, well, how? What is, is it? Shaman? Is it integration? Is it conversation? Is it grounding? Is it? Do you be careful with the music? Do you be careful? You know, what gets said? What gets heard? What gets seen? Um. Is there a limit, you know, it, where, where does, what do they say? Set and setting are so critical. You know, it's like, uh, it, it, where should this take place? Should it take place in a rave, rave-like setting if you want to evolve as humans? Or should it take place in the desert? Or should it take place on, you know, in, a, um, in open grounds or in a, in a forest or, you know, is there something about nature? I, that's what I feel really got missed in the Las Vegas thing is that there was no na- there was no nature. It was all completely contrived. You know, it was on the site of Meow Wolf, which I chose not to go to. Maybe one day I'll be sad I didn't go. But it's the whole freaking place is all about electronic illusions everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And in these days where we're spending so much time on, even as we speak now, uh, pretending to be with people when we're really on electronics, it just seems like it's maybe greater damage than good is actually being done. God, I hate saying that. And yeah, I I hate I hate thinking that, but I think you might be onto something. You know, as you're talking, the I'm trying to really tap into where I transitioned from being more where I would orient that way, I would orient orient around the culture. Like back in the early nineties, I would have been right there with them, you know, just sort of so naive and so, you know, idealistic and just part of the party. I wouldn't be thinking in in a more integrated and mature manner about it. And I'm sure some of that is just the maturity of 30 years of growth since then. But there's another component. There's a couple of other components. One, you just mentioned nature. Nature is, uh, well, while you can still act ridiculous in nature, that's for sure, there does tend to be more of a connection to something sacred when people are using psychedelics in nature. Uh, Something that is sacred beyond human culture. There's there's a different type of energy that you get from experiencing a lake or a oak tree or sky or the grass or the birds flying over overhead. There's something truly sacred in that interaction that can sometimes quell some of that uh, that more dysfunctional type of party behavior. Mm-hmm. But there's another component too that has definitely informed me in that process of transitioning from the partier to the responsible psychedelic user and i'll tell you exactly what it is and it's trauma Hmm. say more about that yeah trauma is you know because i've gone through a spinal cord injury i've been paralyzed in the time between the early 90s and now the late 90s is when i became paralyzed it was so humbling to go through that traumatic process that I simply can't orient around the naive utopian party world the same way that I used to. 
There's something so humbling about here's one, one component. I'm just sort of spontaneously just sort of thinking aloud as I'm, as I'm working this out. Part of my recovery uh, has been being reliant upon um, say hospital staffs, doctors, nurses, people who had to think clearly and had to show up to their job and do a job that they don't like doing and show up for it anyway to take care of me and help me to stay alive. If any of those guys had been on psychedelics, this would not have been the case. I would much prefer a nurse and a doctor and a surgeon who can focus and who aren't out of their minds and who aren't idealistic and who aren't talking about fam this and this and that and using lingo, but are seriously focused on the job at hand. I value that that has been necessary in my life to have people who are sober minded people to help me stay alive. And so now I look at you know, the sort of the culture around the sort of psychedelic culture. I look at some of these people and I think these people aren't anywhere near the level of responsibility that would be required to actually contribute to my life, potentially have being in their hands. I would, the, the last thing that I would want is for my life to be in the hands of some of these people. I know it's really sad, Sam. There's something really sad about it because you and I, you know, we sometimes over idealize or, um, like, you know, pay such a high gratitude to the power of these psychedelics, whether it be uh, ketamine or LSD or, uh, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or MDMA or any of the others, you know, DMT or mescaline or all the all the different psychedelics that uh are still being designed and yet you know you when you even when you really see that uh it it too can lead to like the worst uh, the worsening of the human condition it's like oh shit bummer i thought i had something that that if everyone took LSD, the world would be a better place. But it's not clear that that's actually true at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it, uh, the world would change. I, I do know. I do think that if tomorrow morning was LSD day and in order to live, you had to take a dose of LSD, the world would be a different place the next day for sure. Yeah. But it's well, not clear it's that it would be evolved. One of the one of the terms that I really like for psychedelics that uh, Terrence McKenna first used, as far as I, I, I think that he was the first one to use it, is a non-specific amplifier. Hmm. So psychedelics essentially are a non-specific amplifier of the activity of the unconscious mind. So whatever's going on in the unconscious mind anyway gets dramatically amplified. So if you are someone who um, has deep humility and you approach these compounds with a tremendous amount of respect for their power and you intend on getting your ego out of the way and just focusing deeply on what they can bring to you in a manner where there's, it's not about, 
you know, the focus, you might have a good time, but the focus isn't to try to have a good time. The focus isn't to use it to have a good time. You might have a really enjoyable experience, but it's, it's a byproduct of a deeper, more meaningful, more purposeful intention versus the reason why you're taking the psychedelic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now, if you approach it from that manner, then you can have extraordinary and profound experiences, which then are easy to integrate into your life, relatively easy, because it's no different in many respects than having lucid dreams and saying, oh, okay. wow, this thing came to me in my dreams. And now I've journaled about it. Now I realize, oh, my God, that represents the way that my brother and I used to interact and the way that my parents dynamics influence that or whatever it is, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So in that context, there's a tremendous amount of potential in these psychedelics. But if that's not the context that you're operating from, and that is certainly not the most common way of approaching psychedelic use, and the most common way is certainly still recreation, let's have a party, let's get out of our minds, let's get out of our default way of perceiving reality, and, you know, have fun with some music and some fire dancing and makeup and all that stuff, which, you know, God bless them. You know, I get it. I've been there, but we don't want to make it all about that or it takes away the really sacred potential for these compounds. Well said, beautifully said. All right. Well, it is really hard to talk about this topic because once you start being, as you and I have noted before, once you start being linear, taking on the psychedelic world and trying to put sentences together and pointing to what might or might not be available for those people who are uninitiated or unexperienced, it probably still sounds a bit woo -woo, like sure glad I wasn't at Arcadia and sure glad I haven't taken any psychedelics yet because this sounds like complete horseshit. And it isn't, you know, and I think you really point nicely to uh, what can occur when you respect it sacredly, uh, creating a circle or somebody who, uh, somebody, you know, creating a sacred circle or um, allowing some degree of facilitation that uh, can be a deepening, a, a deepening that otherwise appears to be unavailable into our uh, collective and individual consciousness. And Boy, to put that together with what my experiences was as Arcadia, I have to stretch. I have to stretch to say that's what I saw happening because it isn't what I saw happening. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, glad to be back home. All right. It looks like we're coming up to an end here, Sam, as usual. Great conversation. Thanks for hitting the ground running in both directions. It's, nice. I love you dearly. Thanks for being on this conversation, a, a difficult conversation to have. There's some grief that I'd like to share with you about this, you know, just some honest grief about humanity and uh, it's okay. Welcome to humanity includes grief. So yeah. Thanks for being here. We'll catch you next week. And those, those of you who are still with the show and hung on through this whole thing, thanks for hanging on with us. Uh, My name is Dr. Fred. I'm the founder of true voice podcasting. And now the new course of the true voice, the true uh, true voice course, which is coming out this week. Amongst other things, if you want to get a hold of me, give me a ring at uh, Dr. Fred at WelcomeToHumanity.net. I'd love to hear more about what you're up to. Sam, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, just uh, go to my website, zenwarriortraining.com, 
or you can follow me on Instagram at Zen Warrior Training. Thank you. All right. And thanks to the tech guy for all the uh, technological challenges we had today. Thank you so much for standing up for us. And thank you to listeners. Thank you for the opportunity to speak my truth here on the airwaves. And uh, we will catch you on the flip side next week. Love y'all. Be good. True Voice with Dr. Fred signing off. Hello, everybody, and I just wanted to thank you for getting through another episode of True Voice with Dr. Fred. Wasn't that great? It is so much fun to interact with people and then interact with my listenership about really finding True Voice and then bringing it forward. I really have never done anything more important than this, and I'm finally aligned with myself by helping others find their True Voice. Let's find your alignment. What do you really want in your life? 